0: Welcome to Glioblastoma, a.k.a. GBM, a podcast brought to you by the Glioblastoma Research Organization, highlighting stories of GBM warriors, caregivers, medical advisors, and more. Join us this season as we connect with members of our incredible community and have meaningful and insightful chats regarding all things glioblastoma. Please note that any information provided on the show is not meant to treat, diagnose, or prevent any disease, and all information that is discussed in our conversation is what worked for the individual themselves and should not be taken as advice. The information provided on this show is not a substitute for professional medical advice and you should contact your medical provider and healthcare team with any questions. Randy D'Amico, welcome to glioblastoma aka GBM. Thanks
1: for having me. (laughs) It's a pleasure to see you, Amber.
0: Pleasure to have you on the show. (laughs) I
1: appreciate you reaching out.
0: There's lots of things that we have to talk about and I have a full list of questions. But I think the first one is, what is a day in your life?
1: Oh man. Yeah, so I'm a neurosurgeon. I work at Lenox Hill Hospital, which is part of Northwell Health. (laughs) And uh and I go to work uh you know five days a week like everyone else in the world and uh I wake up early a day in the life of a neurosurgeon is kind of juggling a lot of different hats even though you know you have one title of a neurosurgeon um but there's a lot of things we do every day mm-hmm. right so first and foremost you know I'm a husband and a father so I wake up I you know I see my kids um when I can I go straight to work I'm there usually by like you know 10 after 5 because I live pretty close by I get on a bike I go to work um I was saying that you know neurosurgeons, we wear a lot of different hats, even though we're doctors and we take care of patients. Um, and there's a whole scheduled day of patient care that has to happen. There's a lot of other things that we do. So usually from five to eight in the morning, really before anyone else is coming into work, that's when I do all of my research. Um, and so, you know, I, I, am super interested in what I do. I'm interested in the history of what I do. I'm interested in what are the problems with what I do and how do I fix those? And so, um, I spend a lot of time, Reading and writing, and and you know doing clinical studies and looking at data to try to change how we do things, make it more efficient, have better outcomes, um, find new ideas out there, uh, push the envelope in terms of what we're doing. And so, um, you know, that's how I start my morning, basically, uh, with a cup of coffee and some research. ORs start, you know, around seven forty-five in the morning. So if I'm operating. We're get, we're meeting the patient in the morning. We're talking to the family. We're having that conversation. We're in the operating room for however long we're there. Um, you know, cases vary. It can be an hour. It can be twelve hours. You know, mm-hmm. so you try to schedule your day accordingly. In between, I'm responding to emails. I'm addressing things. We're on a, po- a webinar, not a podcast. Sorry, this is a podcast. Right? People can only hear me okay. on the webinar. They can see People me are too. See you. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, this is a full. Oh, this is a multimedia experience.
2: Multimedia
1: experience. So, anyway, though, so, um, you know, I do a lot of prep work for that. I'm responding to emails from my team. I actually give my email to my patients. um, And so, a lot of times, I'm actually responding to patients in the middle of the day, kind of throughout the day, and helping coordinate care amongst, you know, a variety of different services that are offered. When the ORs are done and the, the patient care is done, if it's a clinic day, I'm done seeing patients, then it's usually some paperwork and catch up time. You know touching base with the team making sure that everyone's got you know their tasks assigned or you know everything sorted out and then i go home and you know again i'm a husband and a dad and so i I read my kids to bed and put them to sleep and eat some dinner and we hang out and then i do it all over again and that's you know kind of a a five day a week job sometimes it's a six day a week job Mm -hmm. you know
0: you mentioned before i mean not on camera but privately you mentioned that you used to be in punk rock bands how did you transition from being in a punk rock band to deciding to be a neurosurgeon
1: yeah that's a it's a long time ago in my life but um basically in college i realized that um i didn't want to be a professional really i wanted to do something else a little bit different Um, i actually made a tv series about this it was called road trip nation it came out in i think 2003. About me Where questioning. Where can we watch it? <laughs> it was on PBS. It was an eight-part miniseries. Oh, my God. I think you can download it on their website. But um, the funny part is when you watch it, you're going to see a 20-something-year-old kid saying, I don't want to be a doctor. Everyone told me I got to be a doctor. I don't want to do that. I want to be in rock and roll bands forever.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, and so I did. I basically took time off after school, and I started a record label, and I booked concerts all around Manhattan and Brooklyn. Um, and then my own band, you know, we toured around, and we had a good time. And I remember as i was getting older we, we were in the, i was in that band for nine years and probably in my eighth eighth year we were on tour in europe um opening up for a bigger you know band it was their farewell tour mm-hmm. they were like 35 years old um and i just realized that these guys were playing the same songs they had written 10 years ago mm-hmm. to like a new group of 16 year olds and it just it it was terrible mm-hmm. right like they didn't believe anything they were saying these 16 year olds were 10 years younger they they had no business talking to them really like mm-hmm. if you, if it was on the street it would have been a weird experience you know mm-hmm. to see an old guy talking to a young kid mm-hmm. um and i was like you know there's there's not a really great future here um they were you know they were like freelance construction workers as a job all they wanted to do was get on tour and play to like you know 2000 screaming 16 year olds
0: that's wild
1: and um and i was like i need a fallback and so neurosurgery was my fallback um, <laughs> in a way. Okay. <laughs> but no, I came back home and I was like, you know what? I had a degree in neuroscience from college. Um, I you know there, I considered so now
0: okay now it makes sense.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I considered myself a smart guy, mm-hmm. um, or at least capable. Let's mm-hmm. say that. And so I went and I treated it like a job to get back into medical school, and I did. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, I had a degree in neuroscience, a, a minor in psychology. I I loved the brain. I loved everything about it. And I th- I thought neurosurgery has to be it. And then you learn a little bit about it, and you realize that neurosurgery and neuroscience are different things, right? Um, or at least it was, you know, for a long period of time. And so then I tested out other fields in medicine and I was like, all right, well, maybe I want to be a cardiothoracic surgeon or a transplant or a trauma surgeon, whatever it is. And I love medicine in general. I just, Mm -hmm. I love the thought process. I love the thinking. I love how much we know about it. And, um, but neurosurgery just stuck with me the entire time. And so I ended up becoming a neurosurgeon. And here you are. And here I am. And I don't, I barely play music anymore, which is the sad part. I listen to it constantly.
0: Okay. Yeah. I think that makes up for it. I also say like, I can't function without music. Like when if I'm showering, cooking, like just, like just anything, like there always needs to be like, like life is a music video. hundred In my opinion.
1: Yeah. No, at all times. And it, it, the funny part now is with kids trying to get them to like, like bands.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And you're like, you're like, dude, this is great. Why don't you like this? Mm-hmm. And they're like
0: like we want to listen to Baby Shark. Yeah they're
1: like Baby Shark or uh, right now uh, Row 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 Your Boat is on like repeat in my house. Okay. (laughs) I want to I want to you like to make mind. a
0: punk rock version of it. I've
1: done it. Please. I have a little acoustic guitar. The kids know a hundred different versions of wheels on the bus and row, row, row your boat that all end in screaming something.
0: Okay. Baby <laughs> baby steps. Yeah. Um, so being a neurosurgeon, obviously, there are many, many different types of brain tumors, but obviously we're talking about glioblastoma. For those who don't know, can you share more about what glioblastoma is and how it differs from other different brain tumors?
1: Yeah. So um, glioblastoma is a, a very difficult disease. It's the most common primary malignant brain tumor, right? And people don't really realize how common it is because we don't hear about it on a day-to-day basis, right? You hear about, I mean, from TV commercials, mesothelioma, right, constantly. Mm-hmm. But mesothelioma is a really rare disease, right? GBM affects somewhere, and it's variable, between like 1 and 4 per 100,000 people, mm-hmm. right? So we're sitting right now in a city of 8, eight million people, right? Mm-hmm. That's a lot of people just in New York City alone, a 14-mile by 2-mile island that are going to be afflicted with this, right, mm-hmm. just based on statistics alone. So it's a disease that comes from the brain itself. No one knows why it starts or how it starts yet, okay? We're still figuring that out. But a cell, um, and there's theories on which cell it is, right? But either a stem cell or a progenitor cell, a cell that leads to the growth of other cells becomes dysregulated somehow. Mm-hmm. And it starts to grow kind of uncontrollably. And what's unique about GBM, or glioblastoma, is that it um, it recruits other cells into it. And so it's not just the, the tumor one cell that's replicating kind of in, like at crazy speeds. It's bringing other cells that are normal in your brain and turning them into the tumor. Mm-hmm. And all these cells are now different. And it's not just pushing your brain away. It's infiltrating it. It's going through it. And so, um, you know, the, the analogy that I always heard from one of my, you know, someone who trained me that I always liked was that it's a, it's a plate of spaghetti and meatballs mm-hmm. um, with tomato sauce. And like, yeah, there's that meatball and you can think I can get that meatball out. But if you had to like remove all the spaghetti sauce, it would be like impossible, Mm -hmm. right? And so that's kind of the way I learned about, you know, how to think about this disease and how it infiltrates in the brain. Um, The reason I say it's difficult is because the treatments um, to date have not been really like successful, Mm -hmm. right? And so we've spent, you know, the last hundred years trying to figure out how to take care of this. Mm -hmm. And, um, And we've made, you know, incremental progress without a doubt but uh not significant progress
0: yeah do you think that at least since you've been working in this field that you found any new information that's come up that's been promising or any new exciting treatments that are potential that you see could actually make a difference
1: i mean yeah absolutely you got you have to remain hopeful when you're dealing with a disease like glioblastoma right Mm -hmm. um the the most important thing is what we've learned about the the disease itself all right and so you know, every couple of years or so, we, we actually redefined how we classify these things. And if you were to go online right now and Google, and I'm sure people have done this, anyone definitely afflicted with it has, and mm-hmm. you know, what is a glioblastoma? How long do I live with a glioblastoma? All these things, you're gonna see this 14 month survival. right? Mm-hmm. And that's the average. But that average is based on studies that were done a long time ago um, that incorporated you know, all types of tumors that were called a glioblastoma. And there were some people who did well, and there were some people who did badly. And as we've gone further along with our understanding of it, and mo- more specifically, our molecular understanding of it, we realize that glioblastoma there's a lot of different types of glioblastoma, right? And so understanding the molecular classification, the mutations that lead to certain types of glioblastoma, helps us understand how people are going to do better and what they're going to respond to. And so, for instance, the, the standard of care now uses a drug called temozolomide. Mm-hmm. It turns out that if you have something called an MGMT promoter methylation, you're going to respond better to temozolomide than someone who doesn't. So all of a sudden you have this this fraction of people now that you can you can reassure that you're going to actually respond to your treatment better than this other fraction of people, mm-hmm. right? And there are mutations that do the opposite that mean that you're going to do less well with these kind of things. And so that's helped us tailor our therapy, all right? And the work that needs to happen now is figuring out how best to tailor that therapy. But, you know, the the way that happens in in the real world is is research and clinical trials. Mm-hmm. And so in our current state, our current treatments that are accepted and approved, they don't do that. They're not tailored. They're a blanket treatment for everyone, you know? And so it's that next step that's really important. Mm-hmm. But things like vaccines are coming down the line. These things are all in research right now. In addition to thinking about which drugs are important for glioblastoma, it's really important to consider how you, how you deliver that drug to glioblastoma, mm-hmm. um, because the brain is a very unique environment. Chemotherapy doesn't get there. And uh, not a lot of people realize this. Right. Mm -hmm. So only certain drugs are going to get in. And so figuring out how to get that really cool new treatment into the brain is just it's another part of the battle. It's another, you know, point of intervention. Um, And it's another unknown variable that makes it like super difficult.
0: Mm hmm. You mentioned talking about how there is ability to test for different like biomarkers, like MGMT. So what does that process look like? Is that something that's done during surgery or how do... T-
1: yeah, so typically... So right now, when you talk about the standard treatment of someone, so someone, let's say, you know, God forbid, someone gets diagnosed with a glioblastoma, they see their doctor, they're evaluated. Almost certainly, they're going to get a brain biopsy or a resection. All right. And that's because the data has shown that regardless of the size, gross total resection, meaning resecting all of the disease that we can see on an MRI, improves outcomes.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: there's some data that says that even getting a little bit more might improve outcomes. That's a whole different discussion. But mm-hmm. right now, standard of care is as much, uh, whatever you can see on that MRI should come out. Right. Right? When that tissue comes out, we send that specimen for molecular analyses. Um, and it takes, you know, a week or two depending on where you're at. The holy grail of this is actually being able to test your blood for these things. Mm-hmm. Um, people are working on that constantly and actively um, through things like circulating tumor DNA or other markers that haven't been found yet. You know, mm-hmm. and then spinal fluid. The brain is bathed in this fluid, right? And you can actually access it through a, a needle in your back, mm-hmm. which sounds terrible when I say it out loud, but it's actually much more benign than a brain surgery, right? Mm-hmm. And we're looking for markers constantly in that too, mm-hmm. to be able to kind of figure out, you know, is there a less invasive way to figure out what you have? Um, but typically the standard is we, we remove your tumor and we send it away for some analyses or we do it in house depending on where you are. Mm-hmm. And then we get a report back that says all the, you know, pluses and minuses that you're going to have.
0: Got it. And speaking about surgery, before we started recording, I was asking you, what is an awake craniotomy like? Can you talk about that? Cause I know obviously some patients can opt to be asleep. So yeah. what is the difference and how does it work?
1: Yeah. So the, the issue with an awake craniotomy, so the reason we do an awake craniotomy is when we're at risk where the tumor location, so l- tumors are like, uh, or the brain I would say is like Manhattan real estate, right? Mm-hmm. Location is everything, or I guess real estate everywhere. And so every part of your brain, as you might imagine, has a function or else it probably wouldn't be there. Mm-hmm. And there are certain functions that we consider um, you know, more important to your quality of life than others' functions, all right? Not that we're ever really sacrificing function. We try our best to avoid that. But in particular, when things are arising in areas that control your speech, or your ability to move half your body, all right. So the language areas, or what's called the motor strip, those are really important functions to people. If you take away someone's ability to talk, then whatever qual- whatever life extension you've given them with surgery and treatment almost doesn't matter. You know, I mean, if they're if they're unable to live a good quality life, you've really you've really taken something away from someone. And so, and when, when we're in situations that we need to preserve neurologic function, the gold standard is to keep someone awake, and that sounds terrifying, right? But your skin gets numbed up, the bone doesn't really feel pain the uh, covering of the brain something called the dura has some nerve endings but you numb that up too and Mm -hmm. the brain itself doesn't feel pain and so you can actually be wide awake talking to me with your brain exposed um being operated on and uh and you're you know comfortable and so we typically do this you know in these situations definitely there are better patients for it than others but Mm -hmm. um if you do it well if you have a great team like my team's incredible at this it's an extremely well tolerated procedure and so I just, you know, we, what we were talking about before is I just did a patient, you know, a couple of weeks ago where after surgery, uh, the guy looked at me and he said, I genuinely had a good time during surgery. He was like, it was so fascinating, so unique. You know, they participate in, in tests while we're operating. So they're throwing questions at him and he, it's like call and response kind of thing he was doing uh he was telling us stories about the last of us that show on HBO. Mm -hmm. (laughs) he was talking about how much he liked it or didn't like it i don't remember because i was doing brain surgery Mm -hmm. so but it's it's absolutely a unique experience if you ever get the opportunity you should come watch one it's obviously like a little bit stressful there's a a person in the room and they're awake and they know what's going on Mm -hmm. but you know we're very forthcoming with everything we make it as pleasant as humanly possible Mm -hmm. we play whatever music they want and so yeah
0: that's wild yeah i know my dad when he had surgery he chose to be Asleep, But, like, that's just – that's wow that you can just, like, operate on someone's brain. I don't know that brains don't – like, you, the brain doesn't feel pain. Brain feels no pain. Is there, like, a reason why?
1: There's no nerve endings. It's just – it's all oh. just information, yeah. So the covering of the brain can. And and local anesthetic lasts about four and a half hours. So you have to work a little bit quickly mm-hmm. um, can in you order just, to do it.
0: What happens, like, if there's surgery – and let's say you're doing a weight craniotomy, but it doesn't get completed in four and a half hours. Do they you like renum? Yeah, and, like, we have to. And like continue or, anesthesiology? Yeah, or anesthesia, ex- so?
1: exactly. So we'll either re up the areas as best that we can, mm-hmm. um, but you never get the same amount of coverage as the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, or honestly, we'll abort the procedure. We'll put them to sleep, you know, and, and come back another time, Okay. right? Because you can always go back. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't put back stuff that you've taken out. So it is always better that a patient wakes up, you know, you know fully themselves mm-hmm. than it is to to put someone to sleep keep going and do some damage
0: that's fascinating
1: the other important part about that that people don't fully realize is that you know we talk about risk factors with glioblastoma right what are your risk factors mm-hmm. so your age being younger is a better you know prognosticator your functional status huge okay we call it a kps but it's, it's a performance ability right it's kps stand it's the Karnowsky performance scale Okay. and it's a measure of how independent you are with your living for the most part. There are things like the mutations. I can't change the mutations. I can't change your functional status when you come to me. right? Mm-hmm. If you have weakness from the tumor or you can't speak from the tumor, I can't change that. That's how you came to me, but it matters. The thing I can change is your surgery. So the extent of resection matters, mm-hmm. right? So doing a, a, a aggressive surgery and taking as much as you can, that's been proven to change your life expectancy. If you hurt someone, you eliminate that benefit. Mm-hmm. So if someone's quality of life goes down, you leave someone with a permanent deficit, you've taken away that advantage that your surgery was gonna give them. And so the goal has to be safe maximal surgery, always. Mm-hmm. And we've got a bunch of tools. I, th- I don't know if, I probably talked to you about some of them offline, but you know we can do awake surgery, the gold standard, right? I know that if you're tapping your finger in that operating room, when you wake up, you're gonna be tapping your finger or you're gonna be talking to me. We use complex imaging, right? We have something now called Connectomics, which allows us to look at brain networks and functional networks and map them out before we even go in your head. We have a GPS system for the brain; it's called navigation. It gives us millimeter accuracy in terms of where we are. We have things like ultrasounds in the operating room, but probably the most most useful is fluorescence guidance, where there's a drug you drink right right before the the operation, and in the operating room it makes the tumor cells alone glow bright red. Wow! And so all of a sudden I'm looking at your brain and I. You know switch on my light filter and all of a sudden I see a big red target you know mm-hmm. and I know that that's where the key is mm-hmm. and so you use those things all together and you make sure that you're going to maximize your resection while preserving someone's outcome um and that's you know again knock on wood I've been very fortunate I think we do a, an amazing job at Lenox because we use all these things mm-hmm. we use each other our experience but all these tools also to make sure that people are going to wake up all right
2: absolutely
0: yeah you know? that's incredible
1: I mean GBM stressful enough. Imagine having to wake up from surgery and be like, "My arm doesn't work now." Like, what? What? What does you know? it
0: feel like for you to have that responsibility? That I mean, you are operating on someone's brain.
1: Yeah, I mean, I wish you could. I wish I could say that you know, you know, you are numb to it because you are an expert. This is all you do, but it's, it's nonsense. I mean, every single case like this, when there is something at risk, you think about your career choices <laughs> before you go in that operating room, right? Mm-hmm. And and especially when you are waiting for someone to wake up at the end, you have to tell yourself. The truth about what you're doing you know when you do a safe surgery you get someone a diagnosis you give them that longevity you give them that quality life with their families you change their life for for certain right because there's this now this consideration of what you're dealing with right mm-hmm. which we can talk about another time about the philosophy of what it must be like to know that you're going to die mm-hmm. um but you know you you the responsibility is something that you know you're gonna take on and, and you just kind of embrace it and go with it. I learned so much from every one of my patients. Mm-hmm. It makes my entire life better just to watch people go through something like this.
0: Mm-hmm. So. How does a patient, let's say that comes to Lenox Hill, how do they decide which doctor they work with? Because obviously there's an incredible team of incredible physicians. How yeah. do you decide like who you're going with?
1: It's a great question. Um, I think they go to the guy who takes his shirt off on TV, <laughs> <laughs> for the most part. No, um, you know, they, it's it's a lot of word of mouth. Mm-hmm. You know who you get referred to. Okay. Um, it has to do with you know we're subspecialized to a degree. So I, I really only do uh, tumor surgery. Mm-hmm. So brain and spine tumors, and even within that, I've even subspecialized a little bit more. Where I I do everything, but I really focus uh, a lot of my research and my my. Efforts on uh, brain and spine metastases. That's my next question. Oh, good. <laughs> All right, we'll get there. Um, but you know, I, I for complex functional mapping and glioblastoma surgery, I do it and I enjoy it. I think patients look for their doc to their doctors for referrals. I think it's important to do your own research. And if I was going to give advice, I would say, you know, look at how exposed someone is maybe in that field. Mm-hmm. Like when you when you Google their name, what comes up? You know, if your surgeon says first and foremost he does like spine surgery. And then at the bottom it says glioblastoma he's probably not a glioblastoma guy right people Mm -hmm. who tend to do this are really invested in it if it says that he's a brain tumor specialist and that's first and foremost and he does everything is around brain tumors and his research is around brain tumors you know then you have a better sign that this is a guy that you can trust or you know a person a doctor that you can trust Mm -hmm. so i think that's kind of the way it goes for me and we you know i'm I'm early in my career i'm about four years into practice my outcomes are my currency Mm -hmm. right So the way I get more patients is by my patients doing well. Mm -hmm. And then their family members see that, uh, their friends see that, their doctors see that, other doctors see that. Mm -hmm. And so having a patient wake up perfect and having a scan that looks good and giving them that maximum benefit Mm -hmm. with the things that I know I can change, not their moleculars, I can't do anything about that. That's how, you know, your name gets out there and people recognize that you're doing good work.
0: That makes sense. And so you recently launched the Brain and Spine Metastases Program at Lenox Hill. Can you talk about that? What made you want to do it? What do you guys focus on? And yeah. what's, the, what's the goal of the program?
1: So um, so I came to Lenox you know, in 2019 um, originally. And John Buchvar, uh, who's my senior partner, was running the Brain Tumor Program. He was really doing everything mm-hmm. um, himself. And uh, John's a phenomenal surgeon, um, super smart guy. He, he does tons of research, clinical research on, on glioblastoma and brain tumors in general. When I got there, there were actually clinical trials for certain metastases as well. And I, you know, I sat down with John and I said, look, man, um, how can I help you? Where can I branch off here? And we can create centers of excellence within these two, you, you know, within the worlds of the brain tumor world. You know, brain is, brain metastases are five to 10 times more common than glioblastoma. And
0: um, so just to pause really quickly. What is a metastasis? Uh, so, if anyone's listening that doesn't. Know. Yeah, no
1: problem. Sorry, I jump the gun sometimes. So a metastatic tumor has to do with a, a primary cancer. So if you have lung cancer, breast cancer, melanoma, these tumor cells can break off into your bloodstream and they can travel through your body. Mm-hmm. And so people, you'll hear all the time about, oh, I've got cancer in my liver now, but it started in my lung,
3: mm-hmm. right?
1: So that's a metastatic tumor. The brain keeps itself pretty safe, but some of these tumors can actually mutate and get into the brain. And so... If you were to look, you know, 30 years ago, a brain metastasis was palliative. People would say you're at the end stage of your cancer, that's stage four cancer, there's nothing more we can really do for you, the chemotherapy's not gonna work. Mm -hmm. Or they would give you whole brain radiation, which it turns out is not really great for you. It has all these cognitive side effects. And so people would kind of give up on these patients. As our whole entire understanding of cancer has changed in the past, you know, five to 10 years, we've realized that, oh wait, no, we have options here. Mm And so we've developed things like stereotactic radiosurgery, which is a targeted focused beam of high dose radiation that's super safe. It doesn't have the cognitive deficits that you know whole brain radiation would. And the control rates on tumors is fantastic, right? In the brain, mm-hmm. okay? We've figured out that certain, certain tumors in your body, certain lung cancers, breast cancers, have mutations that we can target with specific drugs that aren't through a port and making you sick and lose all your hair and you know vomit every day like movies would show you, it's a pill. Mm-hmm. And the control rates there are incredible. And so we've extended cancer survival, you know, on average, probably, you know, five years, six years. The, the, the percentage of five-year survivors with cancer, all cancer, all comers, is projected to increase by like 30% wow. in the next, you know, 10 years. And so all of a sudden, this group of people, which were originally thought as palliative, we're not going to do anything, you know, you're at the end of your game, we've got options. Mm-hmm. And so there's a whole subspecialty now here where we can look at that. And so I've got a brilliant medical oncologist who works with me, her name is uh, Marana Voynich. I've got a brilliant radiation oncologist and we kind of created this group, uh, John's involved, um, some of my other colleagues, and we created this multidisciplinary experience where now you come in, you're seeing your team. Mm-hmm. It's all of us are getting involved and we're sitting down and we're discussing your case and we're figuring out exactly what you have what are your options? What's the best for you, mm-hmm. your social situation, everything. We consider it all. And then we come back to and we and present that plan. And so it's been amazing. I actually, I, I love doing it. It's a great uh, patient population. They're, they're super thankful. And I think we're doing work that is on par with the top cancer centers in the country. Mm -hmm. We're opening clinical trials now for brain tumor-specific patients, so patients with brain metastasis specifically. Congratulations. Um, Yeah, no, it's a real real win. And realistically, it decompresses John, so John can focus on his glioblastoma clinical trials. Mm -hmm. And so we all, you know, we all cross-pollinate a little bit, Mm -hmm. but it, you know, it allows two kind of ambitious people to focus. um, And, you know, You know, if you have two ambitious people focusing, it's much better than one. For sure.
0: Biodexa Pharmaceuticals is proud to sponsor the Glioblastoma, a.k.a. GBM podcast. Biodexa Pharmaceuticals is a small biotechnology company hoping to make a big difference in the treatment of glioblastoma. Using their proprietary nanotechnology, Biodexa is developing liquid formulations of an investigational drug which can be delivered directly and locally into the tumor via an implanted catheter. This drug has been previously investigated in pediatric patients with brain tumors. Biodexa Pharmaceuticals is currently running a clinical trial in patients with recurrent glioblastoma known as the MAGIC-G1 trial. To find out more about the MAGIC trial, visit magictrials.com. Imagine waking up from brain tumor removal surgery knowing that your radiation treatment is already underway. That's how gamma-tile therapy works. At the end of brain tumor removal surgery, the neurosurgeon implants the gamma-tiles where the tumor is most likely to return. So instead of waiting to start daily standard radiation treatments that go for weeks, you get a head start against tumor cells and get back to your life sooner. For operable brain tumors of all types, including glioblastomas, brain metastases, meningiomas, GammaTile therapy is a one-time targeted radiation treatment with fewer side effects and a far less chance of hair loss than external radiation. GammaTile therapy is tough on tumors and easier on patients and caregivers. Learn more at GammaTile.com. GammaTile therapy is an FDA cleared radiation therapy for patients with newly diagnosed malignant brain tumors and recurrent brain tumors. Novacure is pleased to support the Glioblastoma, aka GBM, podcast. Novacure strives to extend survival in some of the most aggressive forms of cancer through the development and commercialization of their innovative therapy called Tumor Treating Fields. Novacure partners with the Glioblastoma Research Organization to work together on behalf of patients and their loved ones impacted by GBM. To learn more, visit Novacure.com. Rune was built by a team of patients, caregivers, and medical experts, consisting of neurosurgeons, neurooncologists, psychooncologists, radiation oncologists, nurse practitioners, and social workers who have devoted their lives to treating and helping glioblastoma patients. For anyone navigating GBM, Rune offers a wealth of medically vetted, digestible video answers to common questions. Answers are organized into major topics ranging from surgery to radiation to caregiver mental health. Check it out at rune.com how important is like a multidisciplinary approach when it comes to brain cancer? Because obviously, you know, you can just get surgery and then you can do treatment, but how important it is to have that multidisciplinary team.
1: Yeah. You, you really need um, a team. You need a team based approach no matter what it goes back to that argument. Like, right. If you Google your doctor's name and he's a spine surgeon and he tells you one thing without including anyone else's opinions in that um, not saying spine surgeons are bad surgeons. They're great people. <laughs> Some of them are probably great tumor surgeons, but you want to know that you've got a team of people that cover every different aspect of your care, right? Mm-hmm. Because glioblastoma care is not just surgery. It's, it's treatment, it's uh, chemotherapy or different chemotherapies. Um, it's radiation on top of that. It's your social needs afterwards. You want that team to consider every aspect of your care. And on top of that, because there's no single answer for every case, you want multiple experts to weigh in. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes your treatment plan will change based on that. It's almost like an internal second and third opinion, right? Or fourth or fifth or ninth, depending on how many people are on your team, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that in general, just like you go doctor shopping, right? Like, well, this guy told me this. I want a second opinion from this place. Mm -hmm. You get that internally. Mm -hmm. And um, it's super useful. Having a multidisciplinary team Mm -hmm. is the standard of care. Mm -hmm. And if you're not getting that, you should probably go somewhere else.
0: For you, how involved are you with your patients? You know, obviously there's different members of this team if someone comes to see you as a patient, but like, what does your communication look like? Obviously someone comes to see you if they're diagnosed and then you have surgery, like what is the full involvement from beginning to end?
1: I'm obsessed with my patients. Okay. (laughs) All of them. Yeah. Um, You know, for better or worse. Uh, So I I give everyone my personal email. Mm -hmm. Um, I used to give out my cell phone number, but patients will call in the middle of the night and it got a little dicey with you know, the family situation. So, mm-hmm. um, I give my email now, mm-hmm. um, I tell them when I meet them, I will not answer you between 7 PM and 8 PM. Cause I'm putting my kids to bed mm-hmm. and I sleep from 10 to five. So you're not going to get a response overnight, mm-hmm. but the minute I wake up, you'll get a response. Mm-hmm. Um, I CC my nurse practitioner. Her name's Taylor Wimby on everything. She's incredible. She talks to these patients every single day. Um, I see my patients twice a day when they're in the hospital and when they go outpatient, we communicate, you know, mm-hmm. I know every step of the way what's going on. Um, the other good thing about having a team, though, is that you're not the only person doing that because it can be overwhelming. People have a lot of questions, right? Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of information about this disease out in the world. And so having a team that you trust who you can be CC'd on that email, right? But the information, you know, is still going. The communication is still there. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely critical. Um, but no, I, I I, like to be as involved as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where I trained, we would actually do surgery and then the neuro-oncology team would take over the patient they would disappear for a while, you mm-hmm. know, until either they had a recurrence or a progression or there was a specific question. At Lenox Hill, we really, we see our patients, you know, on those every two month visits. And, you know, it can be, it can be burdensome at sometimes because you have a lot of doctor's appointments. Mm-hmm. So we try to accommodate that. But for the most part, I think it's super important um, just to, to be involved. So you, you also learn a lot about the disease mm-hmm. when you see your patient that often.
0: Yeah. So. I think it's fascinating that, well, when we first met last year, we had, we hosted the project rush launch dinner and we were talking and i remember it was fascinating that i think i specifically mentioned to you that you're very involved as far as like you know i don't i don't disruptive is not the word but you used it before we went yeah. live but like you're very communicative and doing more you know social media and you're very i guess i don't know if like out there is the appropriate yeah. word but like you're, you're much more um open right than i guess many people would say that like you know a neurosurgeon would typically be and i think that's fascinating it's great to like you know obviously you're so involved with your patients but also like you have your TikTok that we talked about and like instagram (laughs) and everything but aside from that you also have a webinar called tumor talk and that which is in partnership with the journal of neuro-oncology can you share more about that and what you do and what the plans are
1: yeah absolutely and yeah no we are very um we are very out there we're we like to expose ourselves i guess Mm -hmm. and it's um i think it's super important i mean first of all we live in a world where um there's no more you know i i grew up in like a subculture right i was like obsessed with punk rock music and rock and roll music and it was like a subculture that doesn't exist anymore right Mm -hmm. everything is online immediately everything is global immediately right and i think what i do is is pretty damn interesting that's why i like it Mm -hmm. and in a world where there are little pockets of people doing interesting stuff in all these worlds why can't what i do be interesting and and you know and encounter people who like it you Mm -hmm. know and and appeal to them in a way you know we're super safe about patient safety and 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 rights and whatnot but it's it's so important i think to expose what we do also so that people can see it's not rocket science Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's neurosurgery Mm -hmm. um as the joke goes i guess as for tumor talk tumor talk was uh it started during covid you know when covid hit new york city uh the hospitals just shut down Mm -hmm. and to be honest with you all of us super ambitious people had nothing to do we were just standing there and we were like we got to do something Mm -hmm. and dave langer actually Uh, was kind of the 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 figurehead of all this and he was like we will not sit around and do nothing Mm -hmm. we need to take over new york city and we need to fix covid and you know cure it and (laughs) cure the world and everything and um we all just got busy doing individual things Mm -hmm. and um zoom obviously became like a big component of everyday life during covid yeah and um it's
0: crazy how like it was just it was huge for like two years and now i feel like everyone's like like not zoom. Yeah, no. So everyone's like doing Google everything meets, else like now. FaceTime, everything else but yeah. Zoom. It's crazy.
1: Everyone else caught up, I guess. And and so um but that ability to provide multimedia globally, mm-hmm. rapidly, easily all of a sudden came out of nowhere. And we said, "All right, let's do a webinar." And the first one was going to be it was COVID in the brain. Mm-hmm. And it was just kind of basically my idea was go to my my cancer patients, glioblastoma patients, regular cancer patients and reassure them You know that we're still there for them Mm -hmm. the resources are still there for them their treatments are still there for them um how to be safe during this and i interviewed oncologists and social workers and you know nurses and people on the front lines and patients and all this stuff and you know as we kind of worked through COVID, i realized you know there's a little bit of a platform here Mm -hmm. it's super easy to do and so I was like, all right, let me, let me go to the Journal of Neuro-Oncology, which is the, it's the um, official journal of the joint tumor section. So we have organizations, the AANS and the CNS, mm-hmm. and there's a joint tumor section full of, um, it's called the executive committee, full of uh, you know neurosurgeons who make the decisions on brain tumor research basically and, mm-hmm. and the standards of care and whatnot. And I went to them and I said, look, I wanna, I wanna change my webinar and I wanna highlight publications in the journal and I want to make it approachable mm-hmm. for patients, students, researchers, everyone. Most importantly, I just want to read these journal articles. I'm reading them anyway. I might as well talk about them with the guy who wrote it and right. ask my questions, right? Rather than just thinking in my head about, you know, mm-hmm. what they were asking. And uh, to my surprise, they were like, yeah, okay, no problem. Let's do it. Here you are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so we started and i think we're, we're something like 50 or 60 uh webinars deep now mm-hmm. um and we've had you know world experts in the field we've gone international we've had people from you know uh, japan from across the pond in, in europe and it's amazing because i get to sit down with someone and they get to tell me the rationale for their study the mm-hmm. results of their study and the relevance right what it's going to do in the future in their own words mm-hmm. and like all of a sudden like I'm, I feel smarter at mm-hmm. the end of it. I get my questions answered, and I get to meet all these people who, who I can collaborate with. And then the best part about it is it's open. So for patients, if they wanna hear about a certain topic or they maybe don't understand what's going on in that journal article, they log in and, and we break it down pretty straightforward for everyone, you know, all viewer types. So yeah, no, it's it's been a, a tremendous experience actually. Jason Sheehan, who's the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Neuro-Oncology, has been a huge supporter since the get-go. He co-hosts with me about like ninety-nine percent of the time.
0: You guys interviewed me. Yeah, it's so no. I get to interview you now. I it's know. Like it's, roles reverse. I know. I'm scared.
1: <laughs> you could be. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: no, I mean, he's he's a great guy and he's a super smart guy, and um, I think it's it's a what you're doing with this is a similar thing, which is that there is a platform and there are people who will listen mm-hmm. um, and typically those people who are who are going to listen are people who are looking for something right. right and whether it's a family with a family member of a glioblastoma or a patient with a glioblastoma or just a medical student interested in this field who's going to either of our our you know whatever we're putting out there mm-hmm. it's important yeah. and you know it, it's a, it's an ability to to convey information yeah. It's, yeah. and it's easy. Well, congrats
0: on all the success. I mean, 60 episodes, that's incredible. Yeah, it's been a while. very (laughs) exciting. A lot of new things coming up. But going back to being a neurosurgeon, what do you think is the hardest part about it?
1: Um, The hardest part about being a neurosurgeon is the unknowns, I think. Surgery doesn't always go the way you want it to, right? We all, I mean, anyone who told you they have zero complications is lying to you. Mm -hmm. There are complications. Uh, And sometimes it's not surgical. Sometimes a patient wakes up. they get a blood clot and it goes to their lungs and all of a sudden they're super sick and you're like what i did everything right like i don't understand you know Mm -hmm. but there are times where you do everything right and still stuff happens and that is always an extremely difficult situation it shakes your confidence right regardless of what anyone you talk to says even even me who you know i probably look like not that confident on this camera i don't know but (laughs) but i'm confident i'm very good at what i do but there are times where where it doesn't go right you know Mm -hmm. and it shakes you and it rocks you like really to the core and you sit there for you know a week or a month depending on how bad it is and you say you know am I am I doing this right or like mm-hmm. did I get did I get too cocky like what should I've pulled back or should I've gone forward did I do the right thing those situations are always extremely difficult mm-hmm. but more so than that it's it's the patients always and so when you do your best right and someone still succumbs to the disease mm-hmm. that sucks mm-hmm. right and you're that's what pushes us to be involved in research that's what pushes us to look that a little bit better at this stuff and say well maybe we're asking the wrong questions or maybe i'm not doing enough you know and it, it kind of goes back to what your goals are but if you're if your goal is to help people and people aren't being helped or if you aren't doing enough to to help people then you're failing at your goal mm-hmm. right and you have to kind of balance that in your head and it's a real i don't want to curse but it's a Something that you do I to your mind. I a lot on the show. Oh, really? It gets some backlash. For. Well, it's a but mind. But
0: like, we're also people.
1: <laughs> yeah, we're humans. But anyway, um, yeah. So th- those are kind of the biggest challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would say the other one, which is a totally selfish thing, is I want to do a million things, mm-hmm. and there's not enough hours in the day because mm-hmm. I sleep from ten to five, and I shouldn't. Mm-hmm. I should sleep from maybe you know twelve to one or something. <laughs>
0: Sounds a little aggressive.
1: No, I that know. But there's sleep. just, there's so much to do. There's so many ideas out there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if, if neurosurgery moved at the speed of tech, mm-hmm. right, things might be different, right? Mm-hmm. But there's, there's regulations and there's hurdles, right? Yeah. Funding for research, for instance, is hard to come by. And the grant process and review process takes time. And so you, you're getting these lags of kind of how fast you can get things done. Mm-hmm. Um, through red tape and whatnot, and that's that's why when I say that Lenox Hill is disruptive, it's because we kind of push the limits of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, Which we're is kind amazing. of a, yeah, we're kind of an act first, ask questions later kind of thing. But we follow the rules, we do things safely. But I mean, if you sit there waiting for someone to tell you to go ahead, you're going to be waiting a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, so
0: how would you feel like, or not? How would you feel like? How do you personally manage stress inside the operating room and like outside the operating room? Yeah,
1: well, you know, John actually and I have talked about this a lot. Um, I had a I had a complication early early on in my career where uh, John actually was walking by and he saw me struggling a little bit. Um, there was a torn blood vessel; It was a pretty important blood vessel. And he came in to help out. You know, I, I afterwards I remained actually completely calm. I knew what I needed to do, but there's no way to deny that it's a stressful situation. And uh, John came in and after he helped me out a little bit, we got everything under control. At the end of the case, he came in. Woman did fine, by the way. John came in and was like, you know, man, he's like, I just want to say you handled yourself perfect mm-hmm. and what he meant by that was that you you actually don't you can't panic no matter how bad something gets because if you panic and you're the captain of that ship everyone panics mm-hmm. and when other people panic the right things don't happen so what you need to do is you need to just remain calm you need to trust your training right and you need to say you know you need to delegate all right I need you to do this very clearly mm-hmm. so you have to stop and think and I need you to do this very clearly and I need you to do this and I'm going to do this mm-hmm. and all together if we remain calm we're going to get that stuff done and so you kind of shift you shift gears a little bit uh, you've never been in the operating room with me I'd love to have you come by I by think the way. that'd be so much we fun we have we have visitors we have you know students rotating through all the time um and we can bring wow, in visitors my, without a doubt yeah we'll day. get you we'll get you all your qualifications <laughs> and everything we'll wild. bring you in and um and you know I, I I'm very chill in the operating room because like I said I'm, I'm you know very confident about what I do mm-hmm. um but you know you shift gears when that happens all of a sudden the music goes off you know everyone has to focus mm-hmm. and so you do that
0: what about personally like when you're off work like how do you de-stress
1: nothing else stresses me out really <laughs> yeah so this is a, a luxury that um you know i have look i, I deal with cancer on a daily basis whether mm-hmm. it's a glioblastoma or a metastatic cancer i deal with people who are facing their mortality every single day and some of those situations are you know a 90 year old person who's lived a very full life some of those people are 30 year olds who have not lived a full life and mm-hmm. whose life I've outlived right in my 41 years it it makes you incredibly grateful for everything that you have in your life and so you know if you're if if i come home and there's you know uh i don't even know i'm trying to think of what stressed me out recently toys all over the floor yeah if my house is a mess right it's okay mm-hmm. like i'm not i'm i'm okay mm-hmm. right we just get through it one step at a time we go through it yeah, no, I, I don't, I don't get too stressed out about a lot of things anymore. And I think my job changed me. I'm pretty, you know, I'm pretty calm about most things. There are de- look, if someone in my family is sick, I'm going to be stressed out. Right. But at the same time, you know, there's a process to all this. And, you know, again, an understanding that not, you know, nothing's going to get fixed immediately. Let's stop and think our way through and let's figure this out.
0: Mm-hmm. So, I always feel like every time I'm on, I do a podcast, I always get gut checked. It's like, I stress out a lot about very minor things. And I always interview someone, whether it's like, you know, a neurosurgeon or a doctor or a patient with glioblastoma or a caregiver, and they all just give such good advice. And I'm just like, here I am, like stressed out. About, like,
2: stress. I
0: don't know that like my Uber eats was like five minutes late like it's nonsense it's really <laughs> well, don't get me wrong I, I, it's I'm, a good gut check for sure
1: i don't like being late to things i wouldn't say i get super stressed out about it but i don't like being late to things i'm always mm. kind of on you time
0: 20 minutes early today i was well, like i'm was, not even here yet I'm i was talking you weren't even
1: in the state yet <laughs> i think you were. Just, you were still was, in the air <laughs> i was still in the air <laughs> no but i think um my um I was taught at a very young age. early's on time. On time is late. And late unacceptable. Because
0: you grew up in New York. Yeah.
1: So we've. I've I just grew been up in like Miami
0: that. where it's like there's. Something's at 8 o'clock. You show up at 1030. <laughs>
1: yeah. Which is the
0: worst by the way.
1: <laughs> no I've been. You know those kind of things don't bother me anymore. They used to though. But without mm-hmm. a doubt. But I think I just got a lot of perspective. I get a lot of perspective. Like I said i learned something from every single one of my patients. Mm-hmm. Um, every single one. And every case teaches me and reiterates that whole thing about. You know gratitude for what you have. Look, I, I could get sick tomorrow, right? We've all seen it. I've mm-hmm. seen people my age, younger, older, everyone gets sick. And so why waste my time thinking about things that, that you know, aren't going to affect me like that could, right? Mm-hmm. So just enjoy yourself. Here I am just like
2: mental
0: notes. <laughs> do you have to, yeah, oh, go, go ahead, ahead, go ahead. No,
1: no I was trying to think. there was one more thing I wanted to say about it but I forgot so I'll bring it back that later. sorry
0: for cutting you off no, it's good. <laughs> is there one particular case that you've worked on that was the most memorable or that you maybe learned the most from that just like highlights in your in your head
1: no it's a great question um, I remember I remember a lot of my cases because I learned so much from them mm-hmm. um, I think what we're doing with complex neuromonitoring is is the stuff that I really kind of dwell on nowadays um, so myself and my neuromonitoring kind of uh, person, His name's Justin Silverstein. He's a PhD. He's brilliant. Um, he does all the neuromonitoring for our cases in, in um, at Lennox. And I met him when I started there. And at first I kind of shrugged it off. And then it turns out that he was in punk rock bands and I was in punk rock bands. So we started oh, so talking. so you guys were
0: immediate best friends. Immediate best obviously. friends.
1: And then, um, and then it also turned out that he's just obsessed with pushing the envelope and neuromonitoring. Mm-hmm. And um, one day I remember talking to him and I was like, hey, man. I was like, you know, they, they make this instrument that you can do monitoring through that and I want to be able to monitor the brain through my operative instrument and he was like I can make that and I was like really and he was like yeah I was like all right let's, let's make that wow. and so we put together um really a hodgepodge of instruments the, they, they make one commercially but it's like 90 dollars and it comes it's a suction device but mm-hmm. it comes in a um, a diameter suction that I would never use it's it's wimpy I don't like wimpy things mm-hmm. I, I use a lot of big suction and high heat in my in my operations, and so we made one just out of some like instruments that we could find in the OR. It's all sterile. We electrify my suction. It's completely modifiable. I can design it however I want, and then I and we're able to monitor your brain function while I'm operating. And wow. we, it's called dynamic subcortical stimulation. Um, you can use it on the cortical stuff too. And so basically, when I'm operating on someone who has like a something affecting their arm function, right, I can find that region of the brain with my suction, just touching the brain with it. Then i can start my operation and we change the amplitude of how of the electrical stimulation through that suction device i don't want to get too technical but um as i get closer to your functional area mm-hmm. i get notifications so all oh, of a sudden wow. i can like shave away millimeter by millimeter of tumor to really maximize that that surgical result mm-hmm. um and preserve your function
0: that's incredible and
1: so you combine that with the fluorescence with the connectomics now, which is I'm super obsessed with, and the operation's become this incredibly dynamic kind of like super interesting experience, mm-hmm. um, and I, I I live for those cases. I love an awake surgery. I, re- I really do. It's just, again, that's you know, it's it's kind of the it's the utmost of what we do, um, and so yeah, those are those are the ones that I really think about, and obviously you never forget complications like for the instance the the one we were just talking about Mm -hmm. about with when john came in to bail me out you know fortunately we were able to get control of that situation that's a situation where you never forget it right because Mm -hmm. god forbid you ever encounter that again you actually have the biggest learning experience you've got a map of a roadmap of how you're going to fix that problem right Right. and so yeah no there's there's a lot of cases there's no standout one case you know you learn a lot and you put them in these folders of this is what I do here. This is what I do here. This is what I do here. Mm -hmm. But if I had to choose the monitoring stuff is we've really pushed the envelope with it. It's, it's incredible.
0: That sounds fascinating. I would love to watch it. Super (laughs) cool. Is there any advice you to give to someone that's interested in pursuing a career in neurosurgery or neuroscience?
1: Yeah. You have to be in a punk rock band for eight years first and then, yeah, get tattoos. first, ladies and gentlemen. Get a bunch (laughs) of tattoos and then, uh, and then you're a neurosurgeon. That's it. So (laughs) (laughs) you have to play in basements throughout Brooklyn and, uh, and other weird towns in the United States, then you're that's a neurosurgeon. It. Yeah, that's, that's training. <laughs> no, I think, I mean, look, it's it's an incredible career. Medicine in general is an incredible career. Mm-hmm. Um, should we stop for a second?
0: I think it adds character. Yeah, I mean, if you're cool with it,
1: I'm, I'm, I'm just like, I can hear them coming down the street and I can tell her to just keep getting louder and louder. I just It's probably my mom calling the police on me <laughs> for saying that kids should join punk rock bands and get tattoos. <laughs> She wasn't thrilled with that do you whole you have any experience. tattoos? I do. Okay. I've got a few. I, I always wanted have. one,
0: but I'm like terrified of needles. You know what?
1: Honestly, I I probably would tell you not to do it now. Mm-hmm. Um when I was younger, I would tell you to do it, but now I think um you know, the the problem is uh they don't come off.
0: Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: no, they're permanent. Yeah. <laughs> like legitimately so. Um and uh and then you get older. <laughs> and things tend to like they kind of look different. Like, right? Like when I was when I was 21, like yeah. I looked good. <laughs> now I'm 41. I don't look as good. <laughs> My tattoos looked awesome when I was 21. <laughs> they did. Um, now I mean, it's like yeah, <laughs> it's less cool. <laughs>
0: so what would you tell a nurse? Anyway, yeah. So
1: <laughs> so medicine's incredible. All right, the whole field of medicine is incredible. Um, if you wanted to be a neurosurgeon specifically, I would look a little bit into it, right, and understand why you wanted to do that, all right? Brain surgery encompasses, or neurosurgery encompasses a lot of different things. 70% of neurosurgery is spine surgery, right? We do things like clip aneurysms and take care of vascular patients. There's a whole world of minimally invasive endovascular appro- approaches, right? Tumor surgery, or, you know, brain tumor surgery specifically is a sub subspecialty of this. Mm-hmm. So you make sure you understand what the field is about. Make sure you're really passionate about it. You know, the world has changed a lot in medicine. And gone are the days of, like, I went in on a Friday and I didn't leave till Monday morning kind of thing. That's illegal now. We realize that that's super dangerous. Mm -hmm. And there's a huge push now on uh, the mental health of residents and and doctors in general. Because Mm -hmm. for years it was, um, you know, it's an emotionally and and psychologically taxing profession for all the reasons I just said, right? Mm -hmm. I'm remarkably well-adjusted, apparently. (laughs) But no, seriously, it's it's a it's it's a stressful job, and if you don't have that support, you know, group that you have with your family or whatever it is, it can be really, really stressful. So make sure that it's the right thing for you. We've made the job tolerable, and we've made the the job of becoming a doctor better. All right, it's more, you know, doctor focused in terms of you know all those those qualities, and then you know, I think just like anything else that you want to do, put in your ten thousand hours, you know, you know, want to become an expert at it. It's mm-hmm. not a job; it's a career. And that's a difference with that, right? Um, Which is something I learned a lot later in life. You know, a career is something that, like my hobby is neurosurgery. I'm obsessed with this stuff. I think about it all day long, every day. And that's okay by me. Like I really enjoy what I do, Mm -hmm. and I really enjoy how I do it. And if it gives you that vibes when you're thinking about a career, don't do it because you want to make money, right? Doctors don't make money anymore. We used to, we make, I mean, we're fine. Don't get me wrong. We're fine. But we don't make what we used to make, right? Mm -hmm. That's not a reason to do this. The reason you do this is because you want to make a difference in individuals' lives. You want to enjoy what you do. You want to have a fulfilling career that's always going to be changing. You just, you're going to always feel like you're playing catch up with what's actually happening out there. And you do this for the the enjoyment it gives you, gives you, the kind of fulfillment you get out of it and so if, if it, you check all those boxes when you're applying and do it I don't think there's a better job I think it's absolutely incredible we do the wildest shit
0: I love that well thank you so much for coming on the show it's always such a pleasure to chat and and hang out with you so yeah thank you again no. and for sharing your story and for being me <laughs> and the you know, punk rock neurosurgeon that's, that's relatable to talk
1: to. No, thanks for having me. I think that, again, what you're doing is incredible with this, and I wish you all the best with uh, this podcast and your next podcast. And if you ever need us all on together, it would be absolute pandemonium. That would be the, whole the crew. funnest
0: episode, it would be bananas. I think, ever.
1: Yeah, I can't rein in any of those, those maniacs. So it would just... Result in pandemonium. That would be awesome. But no, I really do sincerely appreciate it. I think you're doing a great thing. And, you know, I look forward to seeing more podcasts from you and more.
0: Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Cool.
1: Good. Thanks, man.
0: Thank you. We got everything. That was fun.
1: That's it for this week's show.
0: Thank you so much for tuning in again to another episode of Glioblastoma, aka GBM. To get in touch with our organization, Visit us online at gbmresearch.org or visit us on Instagram or Facebook at glioblastoma research. Visit us on Twitter at glioblastoma.org or visit us on LinkedIn at glioblastoma research organization. To make a donation to the organization, which is fully tax deductible, visit us online at gbmresearch.org where you can designate your donation in honor of someone or find other methods that you can make a donation with. Thank you again for supporting us, for supporting the show, and we'll see you next week. Welcome back to another deep dive with Stash Strong. Today, let's talk about this episode with Dr. Randy D'Amico. What was your favorite part about it?
3: I loved how he talked about surgery Mm
0: -hmm. and
3: used the metaphor of spaghetti, meatballs, and and removing sauce. So cool. Yeah. And and again, that's something that's relatable, Mm -hmm. right? That's something that I've never done brain surgery, Mm -hmm. right? And I can You've immediately, never done brain I haven't. Yeah, Shocking. jury's, jury's out. Shocking. Um, but it, it, think, I mean, just think about it, right? Removing a meatball from spaghetti is easy. Mm-hmm. Removing a meatball amidst sauce from spaghetti and ensuring all the sauce gets out as well
2: mm-hmm.
3: is impossible. Mm-hmm. And, and I think hearing that from a leading neurosurgeon at a top institution, it, it, it kind of normalized what they go through on a daily basis, right? I think sometimes people forget neurosurgeons are removing tumor like his his job his daily task is removing difficult tumors mm-hmm. from people's brains mm-hmm. and to hear him kind of put it in a in a relatable layman's term if you may mm-hmm. um helped me visualize it as someone who knows about it and has funded neurosurgery work mm-hmm. um, but but shows what they go through on a daily basis
0: i thought it was fascinating because obviously you know both of us have been dealing with glioblastoma in one way shape or form for let's say give or take five years and I've never heard it explained that way. And I remember I was just literally sitting in this chair and my jaw was kind of like dropped. I was like, this is so relatable. It's so easy to understand. And like, there's so many different analogies in regards to glioblastoma. And a big one is that it's like shaped like a star and it kind yeah. of has like tentacles and like, we all understand that. But the way he explained it, I feel like was just so easy to understand. And it just, it provides so much more clarity as far as like how difficult glioblastoma is. and it brings more perspective as to why it's actually so difficult to treat, in my opinion. Yeah. And I I
3: think it speaks to the importance of technologies as Mm -hmm. well, right? As brain surgery is different, you know, we've evolved if we talk about change, right? And no change in so long, but brain surgery and and technologies and and machinery that's available Mm -hmm. is changing every single day, right? Mm -hmm. So we're getting to a point of cleaner resections. We're getting to a point of, you know, with connectomics, which he also touched on, understanding the pathways of our brain better, right? So that a neurosurgeon can do the work they do in in a way that not only is removing a tumor, but I also loved, he mentioned quality of life. Mm -hmm. That to me is everything, Mm -hmm. right? As we currently exist, quality of life is the only thing you have after GBM that needs to at least be sustained.
0: Yeah, for sure. Do you feel like in regards to your brother's, uh, Cleoblastoma journey How was his quality of life post-surgery
3: yeah i mean it's a great question and i think it's it's something that everyone mainly everyone that has an operable tumor goes through right Mm -hmm. and so his first surgery reading the wall street journal two days later really like no issue back at work riding the subway 15 months of if he didn't wear optune you would not know my brother had brain surgery went through chemo radiation everything he had to face yeah Second surgery, we went into it. We knew it, we accepted it. We went through our pros and cons. He, he read everything out. The surgery was a bilateral surgery. So his tumor was on the other side of his brain, right? Mm-hmm. So it wasn't going back into the same cavity. It was difficult. It, it was, you know, there was worries about motor uh, motor skills. And, you know, right off the bat, I often say it with things we do with Stash Strong, he didn't know how to use a fork and knife. Mm-hmm. And so you take surgery one, Wall Street Journal, back at work, surgery two, figuring out how to use a fork and knife and like that's a real thing that people face with surgeries and it 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 shows the invasiveness of surgery it shows mm-hmm. the difficulties of it um but his neurosurgeon who is an incredible human and also on staff strong board
2: mm-hmm. um
3: went into that surgery ensuring quality of life right right and, and we knew you know there was going to be a little bit left possibly um but we wanted as many good days as we could have possible with Jeej. And, and I think the way he went about that surgery ensured that mm-hmm. there was aphasia issues, right? There was a couple issues like that. We had to talk to him. He's back running, right? Mm-hmm. He's golfing, you know, he just had to face some difficulties with speech, but his way was going to therapies, right? G- getting better every day. And, you know, I always say metaphorically using that fork and knife to kind of carve himself back into who he was before, but it all comes back to like the importance of quality of life post-surgery. Yeah.
0: I think that's a really great analogy too. I like how you kind of reference the, the fork and knife as far as like the way he kind of like built himself up past post-second surgery, you know, and as opposed to like, even though that happened after that, but mm-hmm. how you kind of like made it positive. I think that's yeah. pretty cool.
3: Yeah, and a lot of people go through difficult surgeries, mm-hmm. right, a lot of people come to staff Strong and, and surgery might not have gone as well. Mm-hmm. And, and that to me is like that stage one, right, if you may have like the first thing that happens to a lot of people, How can we get to a point of just like better understanding the brain, Mm -hmm. connectomics comes into play? How can we better uh, ensure surgeries are giving quality of life to give that patient a fighting chance?
0: Yeah. Being that you're around so many different, let's say, you know, brain tumor developments and you know, obviously you're working in the, in the space now, is there any particular let's say therapy or device or, or anything that you've seen in relation to surgery that you're like, oh, this is pretty cool.
3: Yeah. I mean, the number one thing for us and, and what I've seen in our medical advisory board is, is, is fascinated by is um, what we funded with the Glioma Connectome project. So we have eight right now. Um, leading institutions that are using connectomics to better understand those pathways, right? So Mm -hmm. it's twofold. It's both going into surgery to understand how the location of the tumor might impact speech, might impact mobility, different things that would happen from that surgery, but then also treatment, right? So understanding, okay, I did this, I -hmm. impacted these pathways, what treatments might also be available that can help based on location, based on you know, what happened there. So what is going on in the connectomics space from a surgery perspective, I think is, I, I know from <laughs> listening to the leaders talk about this, mm-hmm. it's cutting edge. Yeah. Um, it's a difference and, and it's why it's something that we have been passionate about funding because again, Stash Strong's, one of our missions is to ensure quality of life for patients and, and it often starts with surgery.
0: Mm-hmm. Love that. That's super cool. I think for me. I'm, you know, this is just my personal opinion from what I've, what I've seen. I feel like I'm so fascinated by, like, AI. Mm-hmm. I've seen that doctors and, you know, surgeons will all put like, on, like, these, like, VR goggles, and they'll kind of, like, inside the surgery. I think that's so fascinating. Yeah. So I'm kind of excited to see personally, like, where that sort of develops over the next couple of years.
3: Yeah, that that combo of, like, AI and tech mm-hmm. entering the brain tumor space is mm-hmm. going to be very important, I think, to that, you know, reaching change. For sure.
0: Well... Thank you again for joining us on another segment of Deep Dive with Sastron.